Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. This time I'm going to look at digital campaigning and its impact on politics, but not the theory of what could or should be done, rather the reality of what actually happens at the grassroots. So to discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined this time by Kate Dommert from the University of Sheffield, where she is Senior Lecturer in the Public Understanding of Politics. She also, earlier this year, co-authored a piece of new research into how digital campaigning tactics do and don't get taken up at the grassroots. So welcome, Kate. Hello, thanks so much for having me. And it's a fantastic job title that you have there, Le Senior Lecturer in the Public Understanding of Politics. It feels like maybe also slightly a fruitless title. It's quite a struggle, isn't it, to well, get the public to understand politics well? It is, but it does mean that I get to speak to other people other than just academics, which is something that I think is very important to do to keep yourself sane. <laughs> Excellent. So let's kick off with that research that I mentioned. Could you just give a quick overview for listeners about what you looked at and what the main conclusions were? Yeah, so I've been really interested in how parties are adopting digital for the last few years. And I think it's been a period in which we've seen kind of a huge uptake of digital tools. And as you mentioned at the start, there's been a lot of discussion about what should and shouldn't happen. And I was really interested in actually what was going on on the ground. So um, with two of my colleagues, we set out to do a whole series of interviews um, to try and find out what was actually going on. And I suppose the broad context to, to set up is we were really interested in how, in this idea that kind of political elites were trying to get um, their party to use digital tools more. Yeah. Um, and one of the kind of great things about digital is that it's quite democratizing. It's quite easy for people to use uh, and you can kind of get involved in a whole lot of different ways. But we were really interested in this question of, well, if, if you've potentially got this democratizing force and all these grassroots being able to use digital tools, then how is that affecting party control? And is it possible for kind of central elites to get grassroots to adopt digital tools in the way that they want? Or are people going a bit AWOL uh, and doing kind of all kinds of things that we might find quite concerning? So we set out to ask those kind of questions and we decided to look at the Labour Party because um, at the time they had a really big kind of grassroots organisation. And we also were aware that there was a lot of variation in the uptake of digital tools. Um, so as I mentioned, we kind of set off and did these interviews. And I suppose the, the main finding that um, we end up offering is that there's actually quite a lot of variation in how people are adopting digital tools amongst um, the grassroots. So we kind of offered five categories in the article. We talk about digital adherents, digital laggards, digital entrepreneurs, digital renegades and digital refuseniks. Now a kind of nice um, hopefully catchy little titles but probably a little bit academic so although to... I do love them as you were saying them having done quite a lot of digital training events in the Lib Dems I can picture different colleagues who fit into each of those categories I think they are nicely descriptive but but do fill out exactly what each of what, what those categories mean yeah I, I think um it's nice because you can kind of imagine individuals who mm. fill these categories but you can also think of kind of whole parties or local parties that that fall into them so how we distinguish these terms is basically it's, it's useful to think about two things so one is about the extent to which digital tools are being used so you know by digital tools we were looking at a whole range of things so you know that range from kind of facebook advertising to 
um, you know, voter management tools to canvassing data. So it captured a lot, but we basically um, varied between kind of high use, low use and no use. So the refuseniks were people who just weren't doing anything. And so that leaves us with kind of four categories, uh, the adherents, entrepreneurs, laggards and renegades. And the way that we distinguish between those was thinking about the extent to which um, people were either using official tools that were provided by the, par by the central party HQ. So, you know, these are things like within the Labour Party, you know, are they using Contact Creator as a voter management tool? Um, Labour also created this tool called Promote that was used to um, get the activists to be able to place adverts on Facebook, but it had a kind of sign off that the National Party could sign off any advert before it went out on Facebook. So there were people who were using official tools. So for the people who were using these official tools a lot, that's what we talk about as adherents. And for the people who were using official tools, but not very much, we're talking about them as laggards. But this leaves these other two categories. And we're in, we found a lot of instances of activists using tools that were not provided by the party. Um, some of these were really quite sophisticated and interesting. So we had kind of people writing their own code or, you know, using pretty marginal um, digital tools. You know, some of it you'll recognize the things like Slack for organizing, um, even basic things just like, you know, using email or uh, we even had kind of people talking about Excel instead of using um, Contact Creator. But then again, we've got this high and low use. So we had these entrepreneurs, the people who are like, extensively using non-official tools and renegades are people who are kind of using occasional tools that are, again aren't official so we divided up these parties and these practices in this way and then we kind of tried to understand what was driving those differences and we kind of really dug into our cases and found that explanatory factors seem to be like the nature of the local party um, perceptions of digital within um, the, that specific local grassroots party, uh, level of skills, and then also what the local party or that specific person thought about the central party. So for example, we had a lot of people who um, were maybe entrepreneurs or renegades using these non-official tools who were absolutely scathing about the, natural, the na uh, national party. Uh, and so they kind of eschewed these tools that the Central Party HQ were providing. And Whereas we had one, kind of... um, one question on that particularly, because I think everything that you've said, I can really imagine matching over to similar findings if you looked at the Lib Dems um, and probably other parties as well. One I think I wonder though about the specific Labour Party context is that at the time Labour was quite a divided party with also a lot of uh, Corbyn supporter suspicious of Labour HQ. So was there an issue about who trusted whom with data? Was part of it, I don't want to use the official tools because I don't want these right-wing, you know, Tories who are trying to undermine Corbyn to get, get their hands on my data, or was that not an issue? No, we definitely did find it in some places. It doesn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of sole explanatory factor, but we did find that um, especially Momentum supporters were often kind of bringing in innovations that were coming through Momentum yeah. and kind of going, well, we'd rather use these than use the official Labour tools. Um, we were also kind of finding certain factions were setting up their own WhatsApp groups or alternative means of communication. So they were kind of supplementing the official channels with their own behaviour. So, yeah, factionalism was definitely a factor um, in kind of explaining what was going on. Um, 
yeah I think so we then we looked at these kind of differences and we try and explain them but I think the other thing I'd like to highlight that I think is interesting is we then tried to think about why these differences might matter for central parties and whether they raise kind of concerning practices and what we found is that we kind of actually went back to um, Labour Party elites and kind of went well you know does it matter if parties aren't doing what exactly what you'd want them to be doing and on that kind of factor about the extent of use they were really relaxed they were like you know we just understand some places just aren't going to use digital tools you know it might be that they just have an older demographic as the local party and that's kind of fine and we can try and do something to support that but when we were kind of talking to them about the use of unofficial tools um, they were kind of quite relaxed to start with, but then we started talking to them about some of the specific examples that we'd found. So, you know, things where people are downloading a load of data from contact creator, so, you know, voter information, and then they're putting it into another system and using that. And that starts to raise all kinds of questions about data. Ooh, yeah, data any Lib Dem listening, don't do that with our equivalent of Connect. <laughs> Exactly. It really concerning. And we also found that I thought was really interesting um, examples of people who kind of didn't like the fact that the central led party were approving their adverts on mm. Facebook if they use promote. So they would just use their own personal credit card and set up an advertiser account. And it meant that they could design adverts and put them out without any central oversight. And by and large, people were sensible. But I remember doing one interview where uh, one interviewee was telling me how they discovered that if they created ads with quite controversial content in, then they got a really good reaction. Yeah. And I was sitting there going, I bet anyone in Central Party HQ is going to be tearing their hair out when they think that you're trying to stoke up yeah. an argument in order to get interaction. So I think there's also questions about local activists potentially using unofficial tools to do things that the central party wouldn't be comfortable with, wouldn't sanction if they had the chance, but that potentially could have a big reputational damage. Yeah, and I think the thinking about that, those two categories who have got sort of low take up of official tools, I guess the arguments that you might use from central office to try and encourage better take up of official are very different. You know, that those who are not using the official tools because they really know the digital landscape and are really good and have their own tools that they prefer to use and think sometimes, in fact, maybe quite often rightly, that they can do it better their own way. Essentially for them, it's a, it's a question about actually there's a reason why using something, that, doing something in a way that may seem worse to you might nonetheless be better for the overall team. And that's a very different pitch from the people who aren't really using the official tools because they just don't really know what to do and it's all too complicated and difficult. You know, the, the, the one lot, as it were, need talking down from their expertise and the other lot need building up their expertise almost. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it, it is useful to think about these differences because we did see parties kind of trying to put in place training mm. uh, where there was kind of low level skills and you know trying to understand even what local parties understood and were familiar with you know had kind of stories of um you know, training being offered on just how to uh, blind carbon copy email you know really simple things but it is quite i think when we think of digital we think of really you know sophisticated whizzy tools it's actually a lot of the basics just aren't even being used yet but at the other end they i think Central parties recognise that 
innovation can happen at the grassroots and that is really positive but you have to have this kind of caution about well if you're letting people innovate you also are loosening control and sometimes that's a kind of it's a tricky balance to maintain because if there's if there's a backlash effect or someone does something that is really associated with your party brand but you've had nothing to do with it and no oversight then it's it's really difficult for central parties to deal with those situations so i think there's a caution about encouraging parties to be too innovative on their own terms and it sounds like particularly thinking about my own experience in the liberal democrats are trying to get people to take up technology that those findings are very broadly applicable across political parties there's a little bit as we touched on of that dynamic about did corbyn easter's trust labor party head office with data but frankly you get variants of that dynamic you know there's always a reason people find to be suspicious of head office so you know that's not specific to, to, to the labor party in that year and um, is there anything was there anything though other else that was more maybe more specifically labor that you think wouldn't necessarily read over so well to other parties or was it pretty much no it turns out you the labor party was a good case study for politics more generally yeah i can imagine that this is that we would find similar things in other parties um, especially the Liberal Democrats and the Greens, where there's kind of a strong history of local organisation and also, you know, trying to empower members. I would be really interested to see if our findings were replicated in the Conservative Party, where I think there is more of a suspicion about giving any power to grassroots. And I think, you, you know, especially if you look back at previous election campaigns, most campaign material from the Conservatives, like on the digital front, has come out of central office. So I would be interested to see if those categories were mm. evident on kind of, you know, that side of the political aisle. But I think definitely on the left wing where there's this tradition of local organisation, I think a lot of the findings will replicate in other places. Yeah. And thinking about how therefore parties might get better take up of digital by their grassroots campaigners, I guess one conclusion from your research is just you need to think about those five different categories because for each of them, you know, if you were to tell me that a room, you know, I was about to go and train a room full of people and which of the five categories they're in, I can imagine I would tailor what I say quite differently. Um, other than obviously, hooray, you've created some categories that will be of value to people, which is obviously a good academic outcome. Were there any other sort of conclusions you particularly drew as to how take up can be encouraged? Yeah, so I think... I think when we kind of tried to dig into what was driving the variation, so those things about lo local party organisation and perceptions of digital, digital skills and central party relations, I think those are the kind of four things that you can think about as to making different interventions. So, you know, perceptions of digital, I think, you know, we found a lot of examples of when we were interviewing people who were maybe slightly more sceptical where they just really thought that digital wasn't worth it and that you know old school campaigning and going out and knocking on the door that's how you won elections and digital didn't do anything and i think that you know to some extent i agree with them i think offline campaigning and door knocking is still really important but i think actually that suggests that there might be a case within passes for thinking about well how are you selling the um, digital activity and why it's important and actually do you need to make a bit more of a case for why this is something that is worthwhile and making it clear that you know you're not seeking to drive out established tools it's just that you know we know from academic research that 
effective ways of, of um, convincing people of campaigns are like multiple different forms of contact. So there's kind of um, a really famous paper that kind of shows it's like if you, people get three different treatments, then they recognise the fact that you've actually reached out and campaigned to them. So, you know, you need to leaflet, you need to door knock, you need to get in touch with them different ways. And if digital is one extra way of you getting in touch and, you know, you can put an advert out before and after you go out campaigning on the doorstep to tell people you were going out and that and what you found when you were having conversations, then it's another way of reaching out and connecting to people. So I think on that kind of way, you can start to see how some of the explanatory factors could maybe help inform how you would try and improve people's engagement. Mm. But I agree that you have to kind of pick a mix from the different factors we identify because, you know, certain factors like if you just have a really unskilled local party you're going to have to invest in training people up um and you might do that slightly differently compared to if they already are using official tools or if they're using their own systems about you know are you trying to convert them to the party system and one thing i thought was quite interesting in terms of how labor systems work was the advertising tool that you mentioned because part of what labor did was to say that if you go out canvassing and you input the data into the system, it's then possible to run targeted follow-up Facebook ads based on the data that you've got from the voter. And there's a, I mean, there's a whole issue about how effective such stuff is and whether it makes, for example, the public a bit queasy. And so there's a question about whether you should do it for that reason. But from the point of view of encouraging take-up of tools and systems, it struck me as a really good example of how you can bridge from people who like offline campaigning to getting them to properly use your newer system because you can show how you get even more value out of that canvassing conversation if it also triggers follow-up ads yeah i think it was a really smart call, call on labor's part because i think for most people they can see the value of it and i think where digital fails is where it's kind of presented as this panacea that's just going to somehow magically win you the election and I think anyone who's been involved in the grassroots and who, you know, who goes out and campaigns on the doorstep knows that there isn't a secret magic formula and that it's all a lot of hard graft and a lot of hard work. And so digital has to fit into that story. And so it's about kind of trying to put across a narrative to explain how it adds value. And to be honest, creating systems that are actually easy to use to do that. So Labour's had a great idea. But when I talked to people about their experience of using the system, they said they literally got presented with a hundred page manual of how this system worked and it was completely impenetrable. Um, one of the people we interviewed said, you know, really actually detrimentally affected their mental health to know that they had to sit and try and get their head around this incredibly complicated system when all they wanted to do was just, you know, bring about a bit of change. Yeah. And uh, I think that there's a real tension about providing a tool that, on that occasion really did require a lot of digital expertise and skill to a local party where they didn't have someone who had that skill naturally but had to kind of try and develop it in order to be able to to use a tool that they thought they should be using yeah i i guess for all parties that's going to become easier over time as gradually there is that generational change of more and more people being just instinctively familiar with how to do things online but yeah if you're if you're coming from say never having used facebook to try to run facebook ads that is uh, frankly somebody would be doing well i think if they could keep it to 100 pages probably 
instead of all the stuff you might need to learn along the way. So I, I have sympathy with that manual writer, even if 100 pages was probably rather over the top. And I guess there's a broader question which you've touched on there about whether any of this really matters. So thinking about, say, in the Liberal Democrats, the way we move to an online uh, web-based voter management system since the, 20, uh, since the 2010 election, in many ways has been a massive improvement in the party. But you look at the party's political history since 2010, it's obviously not, uh, not in itself been enough for success. And so the fact that when I say next go out canvassing, whenever that may be, however many weeks or months that might be, time, but when I'm next able to do that, and if I go out canvassing with our, um, our smartphone app, in one sense, that will be massively better and beneficial than what, than what used to go. But does it really make that much of a difference either to the involvement of people in parties or to parties' engagement with voters? Is it, is it sort of just a bit of internal admin works better or is it more of a step change in how politics can work that we can expect from these technologies? Yeah, I think this question is really important. And, you know, as, as I kind of said earlier, it's not going to suddenly win you an election if you have a good Facebook ad campaign. I think, you know, you can only see all the money that was thrown at uh, Facebook at the last elections. No, they didn't really seem to have an impact um, on winning any particular party support. So I think where digital is good is that, as you're kind of saying, it has this kind of, it can make processes easier. You know, I've sat and watched people inputting data into systems from, you know, rain-soaked canvassing sheets. And it's incredibly time consuming and, you know, how much data and insight gets lost in the, you know, the process. So stuff like having, uh, being able to take an iPad or a phone out and instantly enter data can massively simplify and make the process easier. And it's also less intimidating. And I think, you know, we're generally seeing a move where people who want to participate don't want to invest huge amounts of time like learning and understanding systems and digital does provide the capacity I'm not saying it's easy but to kind of develop simple intuitive systems where people can just kind of come in get involved do something small and then dip out and not have to kind of buy into this whole bigger package so that's the kind of thing we saw happen uh, you know thinking back to Obama's campaign where they set up the online phone bank and anyone could just log in and make calls for Obama um, through their online system. So they were able to get a lot more activism and engagement by using a very familiar tool, but just putting it online and making it a bit more open. One, so of, my, um, one of the favourite talks of mine that I've given was shortly after Obama's 2008 election victory. It was at the Lib Dem conference that autumn. And the title was something like the 10 things the Obama campaign got wrong. So it was you know, a deliberate sort of clickbait title. But the, the heart of my point, which I think the passage of years has actually probably substantiated as well, was that the Obama campaign got huge amounts of credit for the sorts of activities that you mentioned. You know, the, the media love writing positive. You know, this was back in the day when using Facebook was positive and wonderful and modern and liberal, as opposed to, you know, being scary and nasty and populist. Um, but you look at the swing in the vote share in different states, and basically Obama achieved a uniform swing across all of the US, and yet he was supposedly running this brilliant campaign, piling in lots of efforts to these swing voters in swing seats, in swing states, 
and yet the overall effect was basically a uniform swing. And so you think, well, it's not obvious that it really... Now, the, the, the riposte to that, of course, is that these things can make a difference at the margin. And in a close re- election result, things like the referendum, for example, you know, in, in the UK, they therefore matter massively, but perhaps one shouldn't expect... You know, it's almost maybe the wrong yardstick to expect them to make that much of a difference where you've got a big national swing and a big national picture happening. Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, You know, when we talk about any form of campaigning, really, we're talking about, you know, one or two percent. It's tiny Mm. margins that you can push around. And when you think about the big swings in opinion that can happen at a national level, like they dwarf the impact of these campaigning, you know, realistically it's much better to kind of try and change the country's view as a whole than to pile years worth of effort into a specific constituency but in certain instances and you know under the right conditions those campaigns can make a difference and you kind of can book the trend or you know achieve a swing that wasn't expected so I'm, you know, I'm trying to offer your listeners a fruitful uh, yeah. message and it does, it is all worth it. There is a point of going out campaigning. Oh, definitely, uh, definitely. <laughs> I, I feel I should echo that as well. But, but also, <laughs> I, I think the other element is, is the amplification factor. So one thing, I think there are two striking missed opportunities in the Lib Dems, if you look at our longer term history. So during the run up to the Iraq war, where the party was on the popular side of a position that both the other two main parties were on the other side of, Labour and Tories were both in favour of the Iraq war, Lib Dems against it. That didn't translate into anything like a surge in membership or a surge in party data, or basically because the technology was, a combination of the technology wasn't there and there was a real reluctance in sort of senior party ranks to be doing any of that sort of campaigning either. And so that was a huge missed opportunity. You know, there could have been a one-off big boost in party membership that would have gone in. So I think there's an amplification thing that you can sort of miss, you can miss out on. Similarly, actually, with the Clegg surge in popularity after the first TV debate in 2010, although it translated into some quite good national impact, it didn't translate into activity that really mattered in target seats. So again, in part, there was a gap in the in in the technology and in the data to be able to turn 100,000 plus people in a Facebook group, which again, back in 2010, was a huge number, into grassroots activism where it could really make a difference. So I think getting that right can help you amplify um, or at the other end, sort of dampen, you know, if things are going against you, you know, it can, but it, it can make in that sense, election results more, swing more between extremes because it can amplify success and, and, yeah. and extenuate failure. I really agree with that. So um, a couple of years ago, I did some work with the Green Party because they were really interested in understanding mm. the Green Surge and how they mm. could um, capitalise on all of these people who joined mm. uh, and then didn't get involved and kind of, you know, then just started leaving the party. And I think there was, when I was speaking to them, uh, on paper, they had, you know, significant number of members, but actually most of them had left. It was just that they were kind of getting a a free couple of months to try and win them back. And I think you're really right in that, you know, sometimes you can kind of get what what should be an amazing resource as a party and completely fail to capitalise it on it because the process isn't there and 
I, I, this is kind of it's it is a bigger problem than digital to be honest but I do think that digital can help um, and you know one of the other points I wanted to make is that the really interesting potential that I see with digital is that because of the way it works and because because you can kind of use it in different ways you can actually build a different type of relationship with your supporter or your member or your voter and it doesn't have to be so kind of top down here's our message consume it and vote for us you can actually use digital tech to build more ongoing connections and i think that's probably what was missing in those moments you were talking about is you know you get a kind of surge of enthusiasm or people kind of looking and supporting the lib dems but there isn't an ongoing conversation and there isn't an attempt to kind of get those people and go oh yeah we're really annoyed about this too kind of why don't you get involved in this and building those ongoing links I think is really crucial for political parties and it's difficult you know it's not easy at all and I think some of the other work that I've done with interviews with party elites is talking about you know they want to create these kind of interactive ongoing connections with voters and members but they don't know how to do that um, technologically and they're really worried about the kind of amount of resource and time it will take to create those connections but I think we are seeing that happening in other fields. And I, I think as that as those methods start to kind of filter down, you'll I imagine we'll see parties trying to pick them up and, and capitalize on ways of actually, you know, creating ongoing connections with people and conversations where there's constantly opportunities to get involved and to contribute to the party. So maybe membership starts to look a bit different. It's not kind of lots of meetings and campaigning everyone on a kind of yeah. drizzly Sunday morning. But it's occasionally kind of logging on, getting an email and seeing, oh, there's this like one little thing that you can do. And then maybe next month you contribute to a debate or answer a question. And it's much more kind of periodic, but is a bit more satisfying for the individual concerned. And I think one of the risks with a lot of digital campaigning is the metrics that people use to measure success can actually lead you away from that. So I'm just thinking there are two or three, you know, pressure groups that I can think of that I'm a member of and I have no interest in getting active in. But I, but there's certainly value for those pressure groups in me feeling more warmly disposed to them, such as whether therefore I up my, you know, membership fee next time it comes up for renewal or whatever. Um, but actually what that probably means is the occasional email that just tells me they've done something good that, has, that doesn't require any action from me, doesn't put any pressure on me to do anything. It's probably what I, you know, what would work best for me. Um, because if it's stuff that is putting pressure on me to do stuff, I'm just more likely to end up thinking, actually, no, I don't want that. I just, you know. Um, but what that, what I'm basically saying is, you know, sending me the occasional email where I never have a link in it that I click on might be good. Obviously, from most email marketing metrics, you know, perspectives it would be oh my goodness we're doing something wrong we keep on sending mark emails he's never clicked on any link so I, I think there's a real you need to have a real sense of what you're wanting to achieve with member engagement don't you so that you can have yeah. confidence to know what metrics really matter oh you really do and you also need to ask people what they want to get out of membership i think you know we talk we think about membership as if it's as everyone wants the same thing but you know, there are a lot of people who just want to join and pay their money and have no intention of getting involved. And it doesn't matter what you do. Whereas there'll be other people who, you know, occasionally might be interested depending on the issue. And I think actually understanding what people want to get out of membership and, you know, ideally then using digital to store that information and to kind of create tailored 
mailing lists or you know forms of engagement with people that really mirror their interests is a really good way forward but it, it doesn't it's not a, a digital principle it's just it should just be a good member engagement principle yeah i think generally our conversation has taken a more positive turn than perhaps discussions about politics and and technology you know usually do particularly at the moment but i just wondered on thinking about some of the negatives that are often talked about about particularly how political campaigns can use social media and how social media algorithms almost encourage the stoking up of anger and of hate because the stronger the emotional reaction the more engagement content gets the more people sees it etc um, how much of a problem do you do you feel that is is the optimism we've had in this conversation so far uh sort of does that apply more widely <laughs> so i'm an optimist but mm. uh, i i'm also very aware and um kind of over the last year i've been working with the house of lords uh, mm. committee on democracy and digital yeah. technology which i guess is quite relevant to this and yeah there are a lot of problems with digital tools so i think the kind of if I had to boil it down, I think if you think about the architecture that we use on digital, the, the kind of platforms that are really big, so Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know, a whole range of these companies, they've, they are dictating the terms on which we're engaging for politics. And these are not democratic organisations. And to be honest, they've shown a kind of frank disregard for uh, the democratic principles mm. that we hold dear. You know, so whether that's kind of having um free and fair elections that are not um subject to interference whether it is you know creating inclusive communities rather than polarized whether it's um having civil debate rather than hate speech you know these companies weren't designed to promote a good democratic atmosphere they were designed to make money mm. and it is taken us as society a long time to wake up to the fact that if we want these organizations to work and promote democratic principles then we need to force them to do so because even where like you see companies like facebook creating um you know more transparency or saying that they're going to do stuff on content moderation it's still all on their terms and i think there is a big case for regulation to intervene to make sure that we get the online sphere that serves our democracy rather than undermines it so i think on that level there is an awful lot to be concerned about um, and i think the kind of particular source of my concern at the moment is that even though there is growing discussion about the need to regulate um, to enhance these democratic principles there is absolutely no action really you know we've kind of had the online white harms paper um online harms white paper yeah. said it the wrong way around there you know that's been a kind of in draft for a good few years and it's going to be the main piece of legislation that the government will use to act against platform companies um but it just keeps being stalled it's not being implemented now and uh, although we might see it in the next few years you know it's mm. one piece of legislation it's not great so we need some action i think that's where the concern lies for me and I, I wonder if, I mean, social networks in particular might be the the obvious symptom of the problem. But I, I do wonder if, you know, if all the social networks disappear tomorrow, I don't, it's not as if Vladimir Putin would not find other ways of trying to, you know, I think there is an extent to which, in a way, worrying about social networks is worrying about the symptoms 
and that you know the underlying issues surely much more is a the deterioration in international relations between in this context on the one hand the west and on the other hand russia and increasingly china and secondly a long period of decade or so of really at best mediocre economic growth with all of the economic hardships and social ills that have flowed from that and just if social networks didn't exist in a world of international tension international rivalry and economic hardship well every time we've had that combination in the past there have been similar massive issues it's you know it's not like Facebook has created them this time round in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise happened. No, you're definitely right. Um, I always kind of think about this, about the debate around echo chambers and filter bubbles. And this kind of, there's this outrage that online we've got these communities. And it's like, well, these things have existed offline for a long time. Like we tend to hang out with like-minded people. Yeah. We create our own filter bubbles and echo chambers. How many newspapers did people read 30 years ago? It would be the one newspaper. Yeah, you know, the, yeah. the news, there's much less of a, of, a, of a bubble in that sense in terms of people's news consumption now than there was 30 years ago. Yeah, definitely. And I do think, I, like I'm a... I think of where my kind of optimism comes through, I am a bit of a sceptic about a lot of the scare stories. So, you know, I think that we should be concerned about data misuse and data practices, but I think that some of the narrative that we've got around kind of Cambridge Analytica, for example, is overhyped. I think, you know, there are... that We need not to kind of see digital technology as this kind of like big bad wolf that's out to ruin everything. Digital is a medium that is a is a you know it's a platform on which behaviors that already existed play out now i don't think that means that we should excuse digital because there are certainly things about how digital spaces are designed that can exacerbate and make you know make trends that are already evident in society much worse and i think that's kind of where i do have some sympathy for um, people's concerned around filter bubbles but interestingly the research on that is kind of starting to change and yeah uh, people are saying it's less of a problem now which is interesting I was, I I was think... quite struck on that when I was um finishing my book bad news thank you for giving me yeah. the chance to plug it um <laughs> when I um, and there's a, a bit in there about filter bubbles and so I was catching up on the latest research and you're right the trend very much in the last two three years seems to be that filter bubbles exist less often and matter less than people feared. I do wonder though if more generally there's almost a slight parallel in what we're saying with debates over gun control in that criminals would exist without guns <laughs> but nonetheless there is an argument one that I find I'm very warm to in you know that the widespread provision of guns makes the situation far worse and you know it's not an exact parallel but you could say the question is how if the way that say Facebook operates, that may make the underlying situation far worse, even if it's not in itself the cause of the problem. Yeah, that is exactly it. I really, I really like that analogy. Um, yeah, I don't think that Facebook itself is inherently evil and we should get rid of all social media platforms, but I think there are a couple of things that Facebook could do relatively easily that would get rid of some of their worst impacts and do things to really kind of enhance um, principles and practices that we think are really democratically important as part of society in which case it just seems a bit of a no-brainer to me as to why we shouldn't try and make things better when we can mm. um, so I think the kind of the debate around regulation mm. and digital technology is really complex um, 
but I just think it's it's just really important to not rush to either extreme for me I think you know I'm a traditional academic I like somewhere in the middle um but I don't I don't think that we should be innately concerned about digital tech as something that's really bad uh but I think there's certainly a lot we could do to make it better and and in the classic research payoff more research is required <laughs> I can possibly say that but if you'd like to if you'd like me to do some research Mark of course I'll happily oblige <laughs> Um, it, there's a huge amount else that we could talk about and particularly I think we've just opened up a whole whole set of other much broader themes so I just wonder just to sort of wrap up finally if if anyone listening wants to learn more about how digital technology is affecting democracy and you know to you know is it for the worse is it for the best what's the is there a particular book or podcast you'd recommend as a good starting point to learn more yeah, so I love podcasts. I'm a real fan. So I was very keen to respond to the invitation to uh, come and speak to you. Um, there's three podcasts that I listen to to kind of get my tech fix. So one is a bit more academic. So I'll start with that um, called the Social Media and Politics Podcast. It's run by um, an academic. Um, I think he's based over in Sweden now. Um, but he's great. So he gets a mix of academics on to talk through their papers, but then he also goes and talks out, talks to practitioners specifically who work on kind of political campaigns, often oh, wow. in the best. How so have I not a, come across this before? I know I've heard of it, but it's amazing. Uh, he had a great episode a few weeks ago um, where he talked to voiceover artists in the US about how they do the voiceovers for political ads. It's absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm grabbing my phone in a moment to subscribe. So that's great. And then kind of more policy based in the UK. Um, I really like the exponential view. I think that's really good. It kind of talks about a whole range of tech issues and kind of AI, big data, um, really interesting. Um, and also government versus robots. Mm. Uh, I think those two are really good at just kind of getting your fix of what's going on. Why does it matter for contemporary politics? Um, on books, there is actually a book that's pretty much called exactly what you just said. Uh, it's just come out of Cambridge University Press. It's called Retooling Politics, How Digital Media Are Shaping Our Democracy. Oh. Um, I'm about halfway through it and it's really good. Uh, it just kind of talks through the kind of transformational power of what's going on, how it's shifting, um, how we're kind of campaigning and yeah. how we get active in society. So those are my top tips. And I'd particularly echo the Exponential View podcast recommendation. I, I actually read the linked email newsletter, which is, which is really interesting and enjoyable. Um, but yeah, hopefully listeners have found at least one interesting thing there to follow up. I'm quite excited by the Social Media and Politics podcast. I'm off to binge on its episodes shortly. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining me today, Kate. That has been really fascinating. I'll include a link to your research in the show notes as well as to those podcasts and that book recommendation. Uh, people can find Kate on Twitter at Kate Domet, that's uh, double M and double T, myself at Mark Pack and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. So do look out in the show notes for follow-up links to what we've discussed and if you've liked listening please do tell others about this podcast. Thank you until next time. Mm -hmm.